They went up to the upper room where they had been staying, and then we have a list of the 11 apostles, 12 minus Judas Iscariot, that is Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the son of James. These all, eleven, with one mind, were continually devoted, continually devoting themselves to prayer during this ten-day period. Jesus had promised the descent of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of a whole new era. They're right on the cusp of that. But notice, it's not just the eleven who are praying. They're continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. We'll talk about who those women would include. And then that unit would be also an individual, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his Jesus brothers. Jesus had brothers, half-brothers, but he had brothers. Okay, So we're going to look at that passage today, and we're going to think about the uniqueness of the apostles, uniqueness of their ministry in founding the church, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, and the uniqueness of them being the uh, uh, the guardians of the cardinal truths of the faith that they would write down themselves or have close associates write down in what we call the New T- Testament Scriptures. So to put it another way, we're going to talk about uh, why the apostles were so special, how many apostles there were, and what difference does all of this make. Now again, we're at this very amazing strategic moment of history. We know that Christ died for our sins according to Dr. Honer, on April 3rd, 33 A.D. But his death was a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Uh, he who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Now, three days after his atoning death, we have the resurrection. The literal bodily supernatural resurrection validates the saving value and virtue of the death of Christ. What happens 40 days after the resurrection? We have the ascension. And now we're in this period in the book of Acts between the ascension of Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit in his Holy Spirit and his New Testament, I should say, ministries to found the church. And so we're in that, that, that special, very unique, amazing little period of time right in here as we go back and look at these first three verses of this passage this morning, okay? So we're going to talk about the uniqueness of the apostles, uh, how they founded the church, how they gave us the documents that guide the church to this day, all right? So let's, uh, as we consider those kind of things today, let's uh, prepare our hearts uh, to be taught by the Holy Spirit. Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired uh, this text we're reading, and who was anxiously being anticipated in his New Testament fullness by the people we read about here. We pray that he will, in fact, illumine this text to believing hearts and to teachable hearts. And so we pray your spirit would, in fact, uh, peel away distractions and competing thoughts and allow us to really think deeply, profoundly, accurately, and practically about what you tell us in this portion of your holy word today, that you'd be glorified in the process of that and also certainly in the product and the effects of that. Father, we thank you for each one who's here. We thank you for those who protect and serve our right and all 
the churches in Duncan and in this country to meet without fear of official persecution or arrest. And we think of our peace officers, male and female, uh, state, local, and federal. Uh, we think of our firefighters, and we think of our military, our active military. And we ask uh, you would use them for righteousness. They're second guests today. They're vilified today. They're given impossible missions today and irrational missions at times. But we pray for their sanity, their stability. We pray especially for believers like John Christian uh, serving in Belgium. Uh, we think of Matt and David serving at Fort Sill. We pray for their testimony, their stability, that you would empower them, direct them, protect them, and, and provide for them and their families. And we thank you for their service and the sacrifices they make for all of us. Uh, again, Father, we pray you'd be glorified as we open your word, uh, begin to think some of your thoughts after you, and especially as we think about the uniqueness of not just the 11, but the 12 and really the 13 capital A apostles. We thank you for their ministry and the way that the uttermost part of the world includes Duncan, Oklahoma, when you're thinking about the uttermost parts of the world 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. So we realize we're uh, a small part, but a significant part of the fulfillment even of uh, the commission in the book of Acts as it plays out. Uh, so be glorified as we study and uh, not just receive information, but make it transforming truth. Move it from our heads to our hearts, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when I uh, first went to Dallas Seminary a long time ago, I was really so dumb, I thought the uh, epistles were the wives of the apostles. But that's not true. Uh, the epistles are a fancy word for letter, the correspondence, the snail mail that we find uh, between uh, Acts and Revelation in the New Testament. The books, between, the books of Romans through Jude are the epistles. Uh, and in fact... Uh, most of the apostles probably were married, uh, but uh, that's not what makes them unique. What makes them unique is the capital A apostles were people who knew Jesus personally, who saw him in his risen form undeniably, and who formed the very foundation of the New Testament church. They had a unique ministry that would not be reproduced by anyone, but everyone who names Christ is dependent on and benefits by the ministry of the apostles. Now, uh, when you talk about the apostles, you, and you do a Google search now, and you go to images, you get all kinds of interesting images. And I found three that I like. This is kind of a traditional approach. Now, these are not photographs of these men. They're artist representations. And they usually make Judas look kind of gnarly. But that's actually pretty pretty nice representation of Judas Iscariot. Uh, so if that's traditional, this is more contemporary. Yeah, kind of like that. Uh, John's probably, he's my favorite Bible character other than the Lord Jesus. So, and he's probably the youngest apostle, probably about 18 or 19. So he looks like a young, happy, you know, kind of innocent guy. Of course, you got Judas in the back with his arms folded. You know, so I'm not sure he did that because the other guys had no clue when Jesus said, one of you guys is going to betray me. They didn't automatically think, oh, it's going to be Judas because he's always in the back with his arms folded. And then that's my personal favorite. Uh, and you can always tell who Judas is because he always wore all black except for the white headband. So, no, but um, as we 
uh, prep to look at these three verses in Acts. Let me give you a couple of uh, relevant passages about the dynamic ministry and the unique ministry of the apostles. Uh, first one I want to read is Acts 10. If you can turn there, it'd be nice, as, or it's in your handout, and I'm going to add some amplification there if you don't mind. But let's look at uh, Acts 10, 39-43. Now this is Peter speaking, and he's at Caesarea preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household. But listen to the way he describes the apostles. Peter says, we, we twelve, the eleven plus Matthias, uh, we are witnesses. We saw the things Jesus did, uh, both in the land of the Jews generally and in Jerusalem specifically. And they, the leaders of the Jews, with Roman uh, uh, approval, uh, put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God the Father raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. He validated the resurrection, not to everybody all at the same time, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is us. Now, Jesus didn't appear just to the apostles, but he appeared, I would say, primarily in many, many different times during that 40-day period to the apostles. That is to us, to the apostles who ate and drank with him. There's no doubt he was there. It wasn't a hallucination or something after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us. He sent us out. That's what being an apostle means, somebody who's sent out with a message. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he, Jesus Christ, is the one who has been appointed by God the Father as the judge of the living and the dead. He's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Of him, and this isn't new, of him all the Old Testament prophets bear witness that through his name, who and what he is, everyone, is this wonderful? Martha Ratliff would say, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it is wonderful. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Uh, I love that statement by... Uh, Paul, uh, by Peter here. He didn't have to wait for Paul to write Romans to believe in justification by faith. Uh, when I hear that proclamation, look, we saw him. He was lynched, but God used that as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. He was literally bodily supernaturally resurrected, and we saw him. Hey, Mel, we saw him, and not just one of us thought he's, they saw him on a misty uh, shore of the uh, Sea of Galilee one foggy night. We ate and drank with him. We flattened know he was resurrected from the dead. And so we're not really afraid of death as much as we were anymore. And uh, like one theologian said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, I, I get that. But for us, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Uh, Peter's preaching the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God, the Father, loved the world so much he gave a Savior. The law was never a mirror, or excuse me, a ladder that we could use to climb up to God by our own good works, by trying to keep the law, fill us. It was a mirror that showed us we all break the law, and at our worst, we break our own standards, much less God's. But God loved the world full of sinners like me so much that he gave his only son. What did his son do? Perfect righteous life, substitutionary atoning sacrifice, literal bodily resurrection, plus other things, but that's the core of the gospel, that whosoever, and the Greek text literally says, all of the ones who believe. Peter says the same thing, that everyone 
who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the core message of Christianity. That's New Testament. That's apostolic truth. And that's where you start the Christian journey as a sinner. You say, Lord Jesus, I've sinned. It's my fault. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. I believe you died for my sins and rose again. I trust in you and you alone. A second passage on the uniqueness of the apostles is not Peter, but Paul. It's not Acts, but it's an epistle. Ephesians, and I'm taking this slightly out of context, but I'm not distorting the point I'm making. The church, capital C church, not just Tangwood Bible Fellowship or First Baptist Church or First Presbyterian Church or First Methodist Church, the capital C church, the body of all believers, regardless of color, culture, or country or church affiliation, the capital C church, the body of Christ, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole body being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you, Rick Schoenemeyer, in whom you, Ron Miller, in whom you, uh, Janet Deeg, also are being built together as individual bricks into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we're going to be thinking about the uniqueness of the apostles, who they were, how many, what difference does it make, and we're going to zero in on three verses in Acts. In these verses, don't miss this. Here's the elephant in the room nobody notices. The New Testament church is birthed out of a 10-day prayer meeting. They get together and they pray intently. Jesus had promised them, don't leave Jerusalem, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, and then you'll be my witnesses. So they're anxiously awaiting that event. He didn't say it'd be in 10 days. I don't know if it's 10 minutes or 10 days or 100 days, but they're going to pray until it happens. And that's instructive. We receive the promises of God, we rest on the promises of God, and we pray consistently with the promises of God. Look at verse 12. The ascension of Christ took place just outside of Jerusalem. It's still there, Mount of Olives. Many of us have been there. Uh, Real places, real people, real events. Then, after they saw Christ ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives, uh, they returned to Jerusalem, the 11 apostles, and it's only about uh, less than three-quarters of a mile away. It's just a nice, comfortable walk, but it's a physical place. Jesus died literally. He was resurrected literally, and he ascended to heaven literally, and he made it a point to have the apostles see it happen so there could be no doubt in their minds because they were going to go through tough times. They were going to be ridiculed, uh, beaten up, uh, intimidated, and martyred for this stuff. So they had to know it was really, really real, true truth, as they call it today. Literal bodily supernatural seen by the 11, the Lord made it a point to do that. Notice in verse 11, the angels that are there, the two men in white that are clearly uh, angels, uh, they kind of do a a brief commentary on one of the implications of the ascension. Uh, In fact, let's just read verses 9 through 11. Uh, And after Jesus had said, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, which is what they end up doing in verses 12 and following. uh, After he'd said these things, Jesus, he was lifted up. He just goes straight up while they were looking on in a cloud of glory, the manifestation of his deity received him out of their sight. Now, as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white, 
That's what they looked like, phenomenological language. Sunrise looks like the sun is rising. Two men in white look like two men, but they're clearly angels. Stood beside the eleven, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, the King James says, this same Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven will come, second advent, literal bodily supernaturally, undeniably, will come in just the same way as you've seen him go into heaven. So they return with those words ringing in their ears. It's interesting that Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, talking about the glorious lion-like advent of Christ, we call it the second advent, says when he comes back, his feet will touch on the Mount of Olives. So he, he leaves earth after his first advent from the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem, and when you're looking through the front door of the temple, you know what you see? Mount of Olives. And he'll come back at the second advent and touch the Mount of Olives. Look at verse 13. Talking about the apostles. There are four lists of the apostles, and we'll talk about those in a moment. But here's the fourth and final list. It has just 11, but we know, based on what we saw last week, they actually add a 12th Matthias. But here we've got only 11 at this point. Verse 13. And when they, the apostles who just experienced the ascension of Christ and heard the angelic commentary, and when they had entered the city of Jerusalem, just a less than three-quarter mile away, they went up to the upper room where they'd been staying, not necessarily the same upper room where the Lord's Last Supper took place. In fact, Luke uses different terminology, so it's probably not the same room. That is, and here's our list, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, they called him Bart, you know, for short, but that's cool, uh, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, to keep you uh, from remembering or thinking that this is James, the brother of John. There's two Jameses there. Simon the Zealot, we got two Simons too. The Zealot was a political party of anti-Roman Jewish political and military terrorists, is what the Romans would have called them. And Judas, oh, that's not Judas Iscariot. Judas the Just, sometimes he's called Judas the son of James. Let's think about all this data. Uh, we've seen the aftermath of the ascension. Now we're going to have a listing of the apostles. And in fact, when you analyze this, uh, and every time you have a list of the apostles, they're always in, they're not always in the same exact order, but you always have these four first in some order. Peter's always first. But within that group of four, there are always the first four listed in all the lists. And then when you get to the second group of four, Philip's always the first one in the second list. And it's always those same guys, but not necessarily in that order. And then we've only got three this time because we've dropped Judas for obvious reasons. But it's always James, the son of Alphaeus, which is not that James, but that James. Simon the Zealot and Judas the, uh, the just, Judas not the Iscariot guy kind of thing, right? Now let's look at this. Look at Peter, James, Andrew, John. Hold your place. Go back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And I feel like I emphasize this a lot. A lot of Christians don't seem to realize when Jesus is walking by the, the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and he says, hey, come follow me. A lot of people think that's the first time they've ever seen each other. It's not true. Uh, the fishermen already knew Jesus before he called them to full-time discipleship. They were already believers. And they came to faith earlier than his call to full-time discipleship for them. 
Look at John chapter 1, verse 35. We're talking about the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, technically, he was Jewish, so I like to call him John the Baptizing Jew. Just keep it straight. Because all my Southern Baptist friends want to make him a Southern Baptist. If he had been a Baptist, he would have been Southern Baptist because he was from Judea, not Galilee. But he wasn't a Baptist. He was Jewish. But again, the next day, John, the baptizing Jew, was standing with two of his disciples. What's John's job? Get the nation ready for Jesus and funnel his people to Jesus. That's his job. He's the advance man. So Jesus has just been baptized, just been tempted, is going to come back to interact uh, with John after the baptism and temptation. And the next day, just before this happens, John's standing with two of his disciples who believed what he said, the Messiah is on the ground, he's coming. And he looked, that is, John looked, and here comes Jesus walking by. And as he walked by, John the Jew says, that's the Lamb of God, that's the Messiah, that's the guy I baptized earlier. The two disciples heard him, heard John identify Jesus as the Lamb of God, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, uh, Day of Atonement, Passover Lamb, and they physically follow Jesus, Scott, which means they literally just walked after him. Like, hold, wait up. You know, we want to talk, you know, kind of thing. This literally happens. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what do you seek? That's called a rhetorical question. That's not for information. That's to get you just express something. Uh, and they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? We want to sit, we want to do lunch, kind of thing. And he said to them, hey, where you, you want to see where I'm staying? Come and you'll see. We can spend the afternoon together. So they came and saw, and by the way, most evangelists don't do that anymore, Carolyn. They don't just walk around, wait for people to say, hey, where are you staying? Can I buy you lunch? Yeah, follow me. I'll tell you about it. It doesn't happen. I've been a minister for 32 years. It happened once. So, you know, every 32 years, just like that, clockwork, you know. So this is kind of a miracle, too. Some of the stuff in the Bible is miracles we don't notice. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed him was Andrew. Did you see Andrew on this list anywhere? Yeah, he's Peter's brother. Now, who's the other one? What do you think, David's dribbling? We got two following here. One's Andrew. The other one's not named. Probably John, who's the human author, because he doesn't like to refer, bring attention to himself. That's the suggestion. Uh, this week, doing the voluminous research I always do, I actually saw something I'd never seen before. One kind of splinter group suggests this guy was Luke. The other guy was Luke. But that was interesting. I didn't think about that. But I think it's probably John and Andrew. But we know Andrew for sure. Simon Peter's brother. So we, we've got that nailed down, right? Now watch this. After Andrew and this other guy, John or Luke or whoever he was, had interacted with Jesus for an hour or two or three, they were convinced he was the Messiah. They had trusted in him as Messiah. And look what happens. First thing Andrew does after he separates from the long lunch with the Lord Jesus First thing he does is find his brother Simon. Now, Simon's a fisherman from Galilee, but all these guys are down there with John the Baptist trying to figure out who the Messiah is. They're that interested. So he finds his brother, who's somewhere in the region there, uh, and said to him, we have found a great prophet who might become uh, the next governor of Judea. Right? No. We have found the Messiah. We found the Christ. We found the one 
that, that, that is God's representative, that God's agent for salvation, both uh, soteriologically and eschatologically, both personally and for uh, all of history. We found the Messiah, which you want to write it in Greek as Christ. Uh, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and he said, your name's Simon? Now, what you don't know is Simon means listener. So he's saying, hey, Andrew's so excited. He's found the Messiah. He brings, drags Peter to Jesus. And Jesus says, first thing, hey, your name's, your name's listener? And I think he says it with a big smile on his face, like, your name's listener? We all know you don't listen. We all know that you kind of shoot first and ask questions later. We're not going to call you listener around here. Plus, we're going to have so many Simons in the mix. It's going to be confusing. Anyway, we're going to call you Cephas, which means rocky. Uh, and I heard somebody who should know better recently say that meant Jesus knew he would be strong from the get-go. Now, this is the word for little rock, just like the capital of Arkansas. You know, uh, It means you're kind of rough on, around the edges, but we'll work on you, you know. He didn't say, clean yourself up and maybe I'll talk to you. You want to come to me in faith, I'll save you just like you are, and then we'll start changing you. Okay? He accepts you just the way you are, and then he starts working on you. And that's the way salvation works because it's about what he does for us, not what we do for him. So that's how Andrew and Peter and probably John came to faith. Now, since we're thinking about that, look at Mark chapter 1 real quick. Mark chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are discipleship manuals. They're written to the early church, written to believers to tell you what discipleship looks like. John comes back and is talking about the spiritual dynamics of salvation and discipleship, believe in Christ to receive eternal life, abide in Christ to express eternal life in the believer's life. So writing a discipleship manual, Mark just assumes everybody in the church knows these guys were already believers long weeks, if not months before Jesus in Galilee calls them the full-time discipleship. But Brad, you're just making that up. Dallas Seminary invented that in 1938. Yeah, actually, no. Look at, uh, look at Matthew one, or Mark 1, 14. And I'm so glad that Mark wrote it this way. Now, after John the Baptist, John after John the baptizing Jew had been taken into custody, what does that mean? That means what you just read in John 1, about John the Baptist pointing two of his disciples to Jesus, that stuff took place before he was arrested. Because after he's arrested, he doesn't get released. He gets his head detached from his body, which is now in, you know, is re, re, you know, receiving renewed use in the modern uh, uh, world we live in, which is, are we evolving or devolving? Now, after John had been taken into custody... That's kind of Mark's way of saying after these guys had met Jesus under John the Baptist and had come to faith, these guys are already believers. They're just on a holding pattern waiting for Jesus to call them in full-time ministry. And after John had been taken custody, Jesus came into Galilee. John 1 took place in Judea, preaching the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled. What John the Baptist said is true. I'm the Messiah. I'm here. The king's here. The kingdom's here in the person of the king. Repent, change your mind, and believe in the gospel. And as he's going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon right, listener, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. They were fishermen, and Jesus said, now's the time. He'd set this up before. You guys are believers, but I want you to be full-time followers. I'm going to send you out as apostles. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Goes down a little further, sees the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and gives them the same invitation. Those guys are believers before that happens, and you know that if you compare John 1 with Mark 1. Go back to Acts chapter 1. So we're looking at these lists of apostles, and Acts gives us 
the fourth and final New Testament list in those subgroups. Now, if you look at the... Uh, what, what else do I want to say about this real quick? Um, yeah, Peter's known as Simon. Uh, John's the guy that wrote the gospel, first, second, third John Revelation. Uh, James is his brother, martyred, the first apostolic martyr in Acts 12. Andrew, we've talked about him. Philip is not the guy in chapter 8 who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. That's Philip the Evangelist. This is Peter the, Peter, Philip the Apostle, I should say. Thomas is better known as Doubting Thomas, but as Jack Smith will tell you, Thomas gets a really bum rap, and he's really a real solid guy. Uh, Bartholomew, uh, John calls him Nathaniel. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector who wrote the first gospel. Uh, James is not his John's brother, but a different one. Simon the Zealot is the uh, anti-Roman uh, political guy. And then Judas, uh, also known as Thaddeus. Is there any reason if your name was, uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Passion events, if your name was Judas and you were a good guy, you might want to have a different name? Yeah. So anyway, you look at the list there. Well, I, won't, I won't bore you by going through the list in great detail. It looks like something only an accountant could love, you know. But, I mean, I love all these, all these uh, things. But, you know, if you look at the, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and look at the, the Acts list, you've got three subgroups. They're not always exactly in the same order. In fact, Acts 1 is the first and only time that John appears second. And I think that's probably because Luke's preparing us for the prominence of John in the book of Acts and elsewhere in the church. But you always have those subgroups. You always have the first name the same in all the subgroups. So it's almost like uh, uh, Mike will appreciate this, but when Paul Azinger was the captain of the Ryder Cup team, you know, he came up with little pods. You've got 12 men on the Ryder Cup team, but he broke them into three pods of four because they were more compatible that way. And so it's almost like Jesus broke... Jesus came up with the Ryder Cup when it's the last time we won the Ryder Cup kind of thing. Uh, let's see. Some of the other stuff you want to notice. James, son of Alphaeus, that's consistent. I ran out of room there, so I just went abbreviation. Thaddeus is a, a, a title for Judas, son of James, okay? Uh, you might, and, and then uh, Jesus Iscariot. Why is it Judas Iscariot not in that list in Acts? Because it's after the fact, right? Now, by the way, let's, you guys know this, but in Acts chapter 1, you might say, well, what's the deal with, uh, it's got to be a mistake. You've got Thaddeus and you've got Judas. I mean, obviously they're making mistakes there. Now, they had several names. You know, I told you last week, my name's Brad McCoy, but everybody calls me The Flash. You know, it's just my nickname, so no, not really. But in uh, verse 23, talking about who's going to become the 12th apostle, you had two candidates, one whose name was Joseph, who's also called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. So you got one guy with three names right there. So that was fairly common nicknames and even legal names, okay? Now, this does get complicated. Just be aware of some of the dynamics here. You got two Simons, two Jameses, and two Judases in the list. You got Simon the fisherman, who Jesus changed his name, nickname to Peter, right? Rough around the edges. And you got Simon the zealot. Uh, you've got uh, James, the brother of John, the first apostolic martyr, and the other James, you know, James, the son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus James, the less sometimes he's called. And then two Judases, which actually the plural of that is Judai. Two Judai, based on the Greek. No, I'm just making that up. Uh, Judas, the Iscariot, the flawed one, and uh, the other one, also known as Thaddeus, uh, for, for obvious reasons. But they called him Thad, of course, you know, for short. 
Now, how are you going to remember that? Uh, there are a couple of different systems. Uh, and Sonia, you may, you may know more systems than I do because you guys teach the kids songs and stuff. But for me, for some reason, this sticks in my head because it kind of rhymes. Now, the thing is, you've got to just remember Peter and Andrew, James and John. Okay, that's just it. I'm sorry, you just got to remember that. But those guys are pretty prominent and they're brothers. So Peter and Andrew, James and John. Then you kind of get a rhyme going. Philip, and, and the cool thing about this system is it, uh, it retains the first guy in each pod. I mean, Peter's the first, Philip's the first, and James the less is the first in the three groups. But anyway, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew next and Thomas too. See, Bartholomew and two. This, went, this is going over just as good as it did six months ago when I showed you this first time. But I'm, I like it, okay? You don't have to like it. You can be more spiritual than the Pope and not like this. But I'm just telling you. That's a joke. I'm not necessarily saying he's spiritual. Uh, I'm not Catholic. I'm just telling you. But uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew next and Thomas too, James the less and Judas the greater, Simon the zealot and Judas the traitor. Does that stick in your head at all? Does it help, Phyllis? Just do that. <laughs> okay. You know, it helps me. And I felt like as a preacher, I probably ought to know the list, you know. Uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew next and Thomas too. James the less and Judas the greater, Simon the zealot, Judas the traitor. So that's the list of 12. Now let's talk about, speaking of apostles, what about Paul, the apostle? And what about Matthias? Last week, you know, we talked about, uh, Peter says, look, we need a 12th apostle. He goes to Old Testament prophetic scripture to say, hey, we need to fill the slot. And then uh, he says the qualifications should be somebody who was with us as a witness and minister from the very early days from the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember John 1, John the Baptist? And somebody who's been with us all the way to this point. And you have 120 believers in the upper room, and apparently only two men met those qualifications. You had Joseph, known as Barsabbas and Justice, and another guy named Matthias. And we suggested those two guys were really solid, and the 120, including the 11 apostles, couldn't see any clear reason to favor one over the other. So they prayed that the Lord Jesus, who picked the apostles initially, would indicate his will for the 12th apostle. And then, you know, they did something very amazing. Very spiritually, they flipped a coin. Or they actually cast lots. And the lot came up Matthias. Now, as I said, a lot of Christians say, that's not legit. You shouldn't have done that. You should have waited for Paul. I, I get that. I see the way you can argue that. But I'm going to argue they did the right thing. Now watch this. This is important. They didn't fill that slot, Nancy, because for the whole history of the church, you're always going to have 12 apostles. They filled that slot because Judas defected, and he never really was a believer at all. And at the very get-go, before the church starts, you've got to have 12 apostles for some reasons we'll develop, even as we go through the book of Acts, uh, including something Jesus said we touched on last week. But when the first apostle of the 12 is killed by the bad guys in Acts 12, there was no need to replace him. They're going to die out if the church lasts more than a lifetime, right? But at the very beginning, they they felt like, and I think they had the correct uh, uh, 
conviction there. They needed a 12th apostle. And so even though casting a lot seems a little odd, I think under the circumstances as we showed you in the Old Testament, it was one way not to negate your responsibility to make wise choices. But if you have two choices about a non-moral issue and you absolutely can't tell the difference, flipping a coin isn't necessarily a bad way to go. Okay, But where does Matthias fit in and where does Paul fit in? Well, here's the thing. The word apostle just means one who's sent with a message or a mission. And it's actually used three different ways in the New Testament. Look at Hebrews 3. And it's, it's funny, you know, you do your word studies during the week and you organize your categories and you, you read what the authorities say about these terms, but then you do your, your homework. And uh, so I kind of broke it down and wrote it out. And I listed all these examples from John about Jesus being sent, being sent, and an apostle when he's being sent. But I left the most important passage out, and I'm thinking of Hebrews chapter 3, which specifically uses this word apostolos, one sent with a message or a mission, on a mission, for Jesus, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's obviously not saying he's just another human apostle. He's a whole different category. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity, the incarnation of God. But uh, yeah, Hebrews 3.1 should be there on your handout. It's not. Uh, Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of heavenly calling, consider Jesus the Apostle, the Apostle, capital T, capital A, Stan, the Apostle, maybe all capitals, the one sent from God, the high priest for confession. Jesus was sent, God so loved the world, he gave, he sent his only begotten son. Let's see what Jesus says about that. Look at John 6, 38. Jesus was the sendee, God the Father was the sender, their co-equal co-eternal, but Jesus willingly took a lesser role, and a lesser functional role in the plan. God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. God the Son is the active agent of salvation. God the Holy Spirit is the activating agent. He convicts, uh, convinces, and regenerates. But look what Jesus says about being sent. He, he really emphasizes this a lot in the Gospel of John, especially but John six thirty eight through 40, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, I've been sent from heaven, not to do my own will, what's best for me, what's going to feel best for me in my humanity, but the will of the author of the plan, God the Father, the one who sent me. He sent me, he's the sender, I'm the sendee. And he says, here's the bottom line, this is the will of him who sent me, God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation, that of all he has given me I lose nothing. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. Let's personalize it from theological description, verse 39, to personal description, 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone, you see inclusion here? You Christians are so late, you're so backward, and you're so exclusionary. Rodina, all these verses say everyone who believes, you know, rich, poor, black, white, Arab, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, I mean, even Texans that believe can be saved. I mean, is that good? Everyone who believes this, beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Take that to the bank. I love that statement, man. You need a verse to encourage you sometime? Boom, that's a good one. So the first way apostles used is uniquely for Jesus in an incarnational sense. He's the capital T, capital A, apostle. Second way is for the 12 apostles plus Paul. I've got 2A and 2B. 
uppercase A apostle in a formal sense for the unique one-time first generation uh, foundation, human foundation of the church. And let's look at the calling of the apostles in Luke 6. Luke and Acts, as you know, are two volumes written by the same human author. Luke is volume 1, Acts is volume 2. You can read the first couple of verses of Acts and he tells you that. But here, let's read what he says about the calling of the apostles. Luke 6, verse 12. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer before he chooses the twelve. And when day came, he called his disciples, which is a larger set of people, and chose 12 of them whom he called apostles. I'm going to train you specifically to be sent out with a mission and a message as eyewitnesses of my ministry and my resurrection. Simon, and you got the list. You've seen the list, okay? But you just see those guys being designated. In my opinion, and I could be wrong, uh, in the aftermath of the defection of Judas, before the beginning of the church in chapter 2 of Acts, they sense a need, they have biblical qualifications, they pray about it, and they discern that Matthias is to take the place. So I'm going to add Matthias as the 12th apostle. But how about Paul? They jumped the gun. They should have waited. Well, Paul doesn't get saved for at least three or four years later. And in fact, Paul's the 13th apostle. By the way, how many tribes of Israel are there? Kind of depends on how you count it, right? You've got 12 sons of Joseph, but Joseph's two count as both as separate tribes. And so that gives you 13, but it's 12 plus Levi. Levi doesn't get a land plot in the promised land because he's supposed to be all over the place as teaching people who teach. So it's interesting. The so-called 12 tribes of Israel are really 13. The so-called 12 apostles are really 13 if you add Paul. That's my opinion. Look at Galatians 1. Now, you know, just to, to validate biblically, he's an apostle. You just Every one of his epistles say Paul, an apostle, capital A kind of thing. But uh, I think just to shorthand it here, look at Galatians 2. Galatians, of course, is his very first epistle. He's very upset because he's been uh, up in Turkey and he's planted some churches and he's told them that Jesus is all-sufficient to save those who trust in him. And as soon as he leaves, some false teachers come in and say, no, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. You've got to become a Jew first and pre-qualify, and then you can have salvation through faith in the Messiah. So they're trying to backload the gospel with a bunch of Old Testament stuff. He's very upset about that. It's the only church he doesn't commend in any way because he's so upset. But just look and see what he says about himself uh, here and in the context he's talking about the fact what he's saying is exactly what the other 12 apostles were saying too but look at verse 8 and verse 9 of Galatians chapter 2 uh, for he who effectively worked for Peter in his apostleship God the Holy Spirit had been working through Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised to, to Jewish people primarily effectively effectually worked for me also in my apostleship to the Gentiles and recognizing the grace given to me all the apostles agreed that what we were saying was what they were saying we were all on the same page kind of thing okay uh, Paul as it turns out is the apostle to the Gentiles not to say the other guys never went to Gentiles but Paul especially focused on Gentile 
evangelism and church planning as he emphasizes in verse 9 in several places in the epistles. So for me, you've got Jesus as the uppercase A, unique one sent from God, second person of Trinity. You've got the 12, Matthias included, plus Paul, 13, as people who saw the risen Christ and were directly commissioned as foundational witnesses. And Paul wrote, writes, what, 13 New Testament books. Although, technically speaking, Paul doesn't fit the qualifications defined on the ministry profile that the guys talked about in Acts 1. Because Paul wasn't a believer back in the days of John the Baptist, was he? So I think you've got a, a, a slightly complicated answer to that question, but it's the correct answer. And we tend to oversimplify stuff in Sunday school, but when you oversimplify some things, you distort them. Now watch this. And just because we're in Second or First Thessalonians right now on Wednesday nights, go to First Thessalonians 2. Uh, if I wanted to really shock you, I'd go to Romans 16, where he talks about uh, Andronicus and Junius as apostles and really commends them strongly. But I think he's using the, the term one sent out with a lowercase a, as it were. And I think it's easier to see in First Thess 2, 6. Now, I guess go to 1 Thess 2, 6 and hold your place and go to the first verse of 1 Thessalonians where Paul, uh, as he typically does, identifies himself and his companions, his ministry partners at the beginning of the letter. He says, Paul and Silvanus, or most of us would call him Silas, and Timothy, writing this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. Okay, so Those are the people involved in this ministry. And then look, look at this, Joe Franks, in 1 Thess 2, 6, Paul says, uh, and let's look at verse 5 for some context. 1 Thess 2, 5. For we, uh, Silas, Timothy, and Paul, never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, or the pretext for greed, God's witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. I think Paul is clearly thinking of himself as apostle, capital A apostle, but he doesn't see these guys as capital A apostles in the same sense. He's just saying all three of us have been sent out on this particular mission trip, and we're doing the right thing for the right reason. So there's some nuance there, but I think you've got Jesus as the ultimate one sent. You've got the 12 plus Paul as foundational, unique apostles that aren't replicated in the rest of the church age. And then you've got any believer who's sent out consistently living the mission He's, Paul specifically refers to several people, Barnabas, Apollos, Andronicus, and others as apostles. And if you want to be an apostle with a lowercase a but with an asterisk by your name, go to Puebla this summer because TBF's going to send you out to spread the gospel. Look back at Acts 1.14. We're almost done. All the messages have happy endings. Everybody's happy when I end them, right? These all, the 11 apostles up to that point, we haven't added Matthias yet, with one mind, they're focusing on the big picture, not on the color of the carpets, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, waiting for the beginning of the church age with the Holy Spirit's descent, uh, along with, and this group includes the women, and that group includes Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this group includes some of the brothers of Jesus. Who are these women? Look at Acts Chapter 8. We're going to wear out, I mean, not Acts, Luke chapter 8. 
I'm just going to try to be cute and say we're going to wear out the Gospel of Luke as we study Acts because they're twins, but I blew that one. That's why they call me the Flash. <laughs> Look at uh, yeah, Luke chapter 8 real quick. Talking about the women. What are, we got women? Jesus interacted with women? Very countercultural. He made no points to the powers that be respecting women as co-equals ontologically. You get no points for that. Nowadays, you applaud him, and we should. Back then, no, very countercultural. Not going to help his ministry trends. If you took a market survey, you wouldn't emphasize women. That's what's going to drive your ministry. You wouldn't be doing the stuff Jesus did. Soon afterward, he began going about on preaching tours, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 especially were with him. They're his right-hand men, if that's possible. But also, there are other people, including some of the women who'd been healed of evil spirits and, and sicknesses. Mary, who's called Magdalene, who kind of had a checkered past, from whom seven demons had gone out. That's a lot. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, is what I'm told the way you pronounce that. is uh, one of my favorite Bible characters, by the way. No, I'm kidding. Herod Stewart and Susanna. I love that name. Uh, and many others, many other women who were contributing to their support, Jesus and the apostles, out of their, the women's, private means. Look at chapter 24. In the same way, just generally, in the first century Greco-Roman culture, you're not going to get any points. In fact, it's going to hurt your cred if you emphasize women are involved and welcomed and, and part of the, the whole organization. Uh, if you were making up the resurrection, you wouldn't make women the first witnesses because under Roman law, not Jewish law, women couldn't even testify in a court of law. They weren't considered to be uh, credible enough to give legal testimony. Okay. Now, I heard a rumor that we recently let them vote in this country. Is that right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. It's been a while. I think that's a good thing as long as they vote the way I, I would. It's, it's fine. Uh, a lot of times I've got to cancel my wife's vote out. That's the only reason I vote, but I, that's just me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. so, but get my point. If you were making up the resurrection, it didn't really happen, you would not have women, and you're making up the witnesses. You wouldn't have women, Andrew, be your first witnesses because it does you no good. The only reason you say this is because that's what happened, right? So in the aftermath, this is Easter morning. The women had gone to the tomb thinking they were going to finish the burial process that got halted by Sabbath. Uh, but they go there, the, the stone has been moved, Jesus is resurrected, angels say he's not there, he's been resurrected. So the women uh, scurry to go tell the apostles that are hiding out because they think they're going to get arrested and crucified next, right? And they return from the tomb, verse 9 of uh, Luke 24, and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest, now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women were there telling these things to the apostles. And of course the apostles were so gullible. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. If you were making this up, if you're writing Luke in about 62 AD, you wouldn't have the apostolic founders of the church not believing the initial reports. You would have had them the first ones to see the, the thing, you know, the empty tomb. So this has the ring of truth. But you got women involved in the ministry of Jesus. And you see, especially in the Gospel of Luke, really emphasizes the concern he has for women, the respect he has for women, the way he elevates their status 
very counterculturally. So they're very much in uh, on the ground floor of this uh, prayer meeting that's going to birth the church. Then we have a reference to Mary. This is the last reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the New Testament. And you know what? I think Mary, the mother of Jesus, may have been one of the greatest people of all time. Uh, truly amazing. But she's not to be the object of our worship. She's not a co-redemptrix. She's not uh, contributing to our salvation in any way. She should not be prayed to. In fact, she's just one of 120 people praying herself. They're not praying to her. She's praying. And so I think we should respect Mary, but not deify Mary. Real quick, go to Luke chapter 1. When Mary finds out about her supernatural pregnancy, and she knows her relative Elizabeth has supernormally, she's too old to be pregnant, but she's pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary goes down from Nazareth down to the vicinity of Jerusalem to interact with her relative Elizabeth. And look what Mary says about herself here in that context. Luke 1, uh, verse 46. Elizabeth goes, man, I can't believe you're here. You're going to be the mother of the Messiah. It's fantastic. It's incredible. And Mary says in verse 46, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, with Jesus in utero, his humanity. My soul exalts in the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She's a sinner saved by grace just like anybody else. And although it's possible Joseph, her husband, might have been married before he, he married her. He's probably quite a bit older. She's probably an early or middle or late teenager, I should say. That was not uncommon. Uh, the Gospels emphasize she was a virgin until after the birth of Jesus. Then the assumption would be they'd have normal marital relations, right? And in fact, if you look at Matthew this time, look at Matthew thirteen fifty-five. Hey, didn't you say you're almost done, Pastor Brad? Yeah, I did. And I, I, we are. We're almost, almost done. You see, almost is a Greek word that means... A while. Not really. Uh, Matthew thirteen thirty three. When Jesus had finished these parables, I call them the big eight, talking about the spiritual dynamics of the inter-advent period, he departed from there and he went to his hometown and began teaching in their synagogue, which was a shocker. Uh, first time in a long time he'd been there. They tried to kill him the last time. So they were astonished, and they said, where does this guy get his wisdom and his powers? Isn't he just the carpenter's son, Joseph, uh, his legal father? Is not his mother, Mary, and his brothers, his half-brothers, after Jesus was born, Mary later consummated her marriage and would have normal relations with her husband? She had a whole bunch of kids, too. James, Joseph, I wonder who they named him after, Daddy, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, aren't they here? We know this guy he didn't go to seminary. How, why does he think he's the Messiah? Well, in fact, you've got those references. Now, go back to Luke, or go back to Acts, excuse me. So you've got the women, Mary, his mother, and his half-brothers. Now, we do know, according to John 7, during the ministry of Jesus, the brothers weren't buying this. They were not believing Jesus was the Messiah. However, we know that after the resurrection, that at least two of them come to faith, James and Judas. James is the guy who becomes the key leader of the church in Jerusalem 
after James, the brother of John, is martyred in uh, chapter 12 of Acts, and Jude, or Judas, Jesus' other half-brother, who became a believer, was probably the author, human author, of the uh, book, the only book that was named after a Beatles song in the Bible, Hey Jude, the book of Jude. So, why are the apostles so special? They were eyewitnesses, foundational uh, human raw material God used to uh, plant the church. There were 13 capital A apostles, in my opinion, 12, including Matthias plus Paul. What difference does all this make? Do you like the New Testament church? Do you like your New Testament? The New Testament church is rooted in apostolic truth, and apostolic truth is found in the New Testament. Real quick, look at 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. As soon as these authors write these uh, canonical books, they are Scripture. They're not waiting for church councils to make them Scripture. The church councils later took place to rule out competing counterfeit stuff that was bubbling up in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries. But uh, I love this. In 2 Peter 3... We read this, 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Christ in peace, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, who, as we know, wrote 13 New Testament books, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, this is Peter in his scriptural letter, referring to Paul's scriptural letters. So also in all of Paul's letters, speaking in them of these kind of things, in which there are some things hard to understand. That's why you need Bible teachers to help you with hard to understand stuff. Which the untaught and or the unstable distort as they do with the rest of the scriptures. The rest of the scriptures. What's Peter saying about Paul's letters? Peter's saying Paul's letters are scripture, right? So the New Testament apostles are unique they gave us the truth that's the core of the church. And what they wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it has been preserved. And I'm only going to spend a minute on this, cat- on this chart. We don't appreciate what we've got in the apostles. We don't appreciate what we've got in the New Testament. When you look at ancient documents that are respected by most secular writers, uh, Tacitus and Suetonius are Roman historians. Tacitus wrote a thing called the Annals uh, of Rome. He talked about Roman history. He talked about Pontius Pilate. talked about Jesus being delivered up to Pontius Pilate. talked about the early church in Rome. Suetonius wrote um, uh, a big multi-volume work called The Lives of the Caesars. He talks about Jews in the 40s A.D. Uh, having riots against Christ and Christ's followers such that Claudius cooked them all out of Rome temporarily. But watch this. Uh, Caesar, Jewish Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars about his uh, campaign in France. Uh, it was written in about, let's, let's just say for round numbers, 100 B.C. or 50 B.C. if you want it. Okay? He wrote it in 50 B.C. The first copy extant, you get your fingers on, is dated 900 that's 950 years after he wrote it. Now, there were copies, 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 but the copies are gone. All we've got is that. Uh, and we've got 10 copies total, okay? Nobody doubts Suetonius and Tacitus are basically giving you what happened historically, but the gap between when they wrote 
and the first copy is a thousand years, 800 years. You've got 20 copies after that, eight copies after that. New Testament, 125 is not even right. We've got something now called the John Ryland's Papyrus, carbon dated at least 115, maybe earlier, part of the Gospel of John. So we've got like no time and space between the writing and the collection of the copies. 2,400, I would say 5,000, but they're, they're using all the witnesses. We've got over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts, the New Testament's written in Greek. Plus you've got citations and versions. Versions are translations. You've got a very early Coptic translation of the New Testament. You've got uh, other translations, the Vulgate being the most famous. And when you've got all these translations, you can kind of reverse engineer from Latin to Greek if you've got questions about certain wording. Plus, watch this. There's a group of people in the aftermath of the apostles from 100 to about 250 A.D. called the Apostolic Fathers or the Church Fathers. We've got enough of their sermons and their essays that if you had no manuscript copies of the New Testament, you could reproduce all of the New Testament except for 11 verses based on the citations the church fathers have of the New Testament as Scripture in their writing. So uh, the apostles were the human foundation, Christ being the cornerstone. And today I think we either totally take them for granted or we buy the idea that there are still apostles running around today, neither of which is true. Okay, So the apostolic truth about Jesus is true truth, it's been inscripturated for us in the New Testament, and you can trust it. And more importantly, we need to trust Him. We don't worship the Scripture. We worship the God of Scripture, specifically the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to realize that You work through prayer and prayer meetings. Help us to realize You give us unique ministries, but You give some people really unique ministries. And the apostles are really truly unique. They saw the resurrected Christ. They testified the resurrected Christ. They died for the resurrected Christ, but they've given us something that doesn't die as human authors, the New Testament scriptures. And I pray that for us as individuals and as a church, that we would realize the, the uh, kind of the debt we owe, in effect, to those kind of people, to those very special uh, group of individuals that laid this foundation for us, that's being represented in China today in, in home churches, in Saudi Arabia in home churches, very dangerous, uh, down the street at the uh, uh, Bethel Church or First Presbyterian Church or even at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship Church. Uh, help us to realize you've spoken, you haven't stuttered in the New Testament through the apostolic witness, and we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.